Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have Goran Simic. He's a full professor of neuroscience and anatomy. He's tenured at the Mediterranean Neuroscience Society. He's their general secretary. So we're going to talk about uh, his research. He's part of the also the Croatian Institute for Brain Research, CIBR. So Goran, thank you for coming. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research, please. Well, uh, I started as... Uh... I worked in a mathematical gymnasium. Then I enrolled in the in medical school. Afterwards, I worked as general practitioner. Then I went for a PhD at the medical school. And afterwards, I was uh, in the Karolinska in Stockholm for my uh, postgraduate education and also part of my PhD thesis. And since then, I've been working mostly in the field of neurodegenerative diseases. But also, I pursued a number of other projects in brain diseases, in development of the human brain, and some others. Well, which yeah. of your projects do you believe will be most interesting to talk about today? What would you like to focus on? Well, as you know, significant investments have been, in, uh, have been uh, given for the Alzheimer's disease research. However, for the last 20 years, there have been no uh, breakthrough medicines, but I believe that in the next five to 10 years, there will be significant uh, breakthroughs and then that we will have some modifying therapies. In my laboratory, we work on several projects. 
One of them is to uh, find small molecules which will uh, inhibit uh, oligomerization of the tau protein. Tau protein is uh, one of the nasty proteins that uh, accumulates and uh, in the form of neurofibrillary degeneration and uh, eventually it causes uh, problems with how your brain functions, particularly in, uh, in elderly people. It is also part of normal aging and that is one of the major problems that uh, normal aging processes are, uh, uh, the pathology is overlapping normal brain aging. So it is difficult to find differences, statistically significant differences, if you compare the same age groups. So you have to include younger age groups and older age groups and make some regression analysis to see uh, some significant changes. Well, what, yeah. what's observed if you look at the, um, the pathology and the histology of brains with Alzheimer's? Do yeah, they all look is, similar or do they look different in certain ways? This is so interesting. So since Alzheimer's times, we have those plaques and tangles, but uh, since Alzheimer's times, he also, with others, explained that there, is also ch- that there are also changes in glial cells and neuroinflammation. And this has been discarded and neglected for over almost 100 years. So uh, today, again, we rediscover that uh, neuroinflammation is so important and also pathology of glial cells, those supporting cells that are important for metabolism of neurons. So, uh, yeah, I was really amazed to see that, how the, to, to read the depth of those people from uh, back... Uh, 50 or more years ago that were uh, that were so aware of these changes. Over time, we discovered many underpinnings of these biological processes, and we simply uh, have different interpretations from those times. And uh, it is extremely uh, interesting and amazing how those even pathological criteria for the diagnosis changed over time. Every four or five or six years, you have new consensus criteria. So some criteria early in 80s, when Alzheimer's research started, were totally different from today's. For instance, it was uh, the major criteria was how many at those times they were called senile plaques. Today, we call them amyloid plaques. But uh, the main criterion was how many of uh, amyloid plaques you have to, to have the neuropathological diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Today, we know that uh, neither the quantity or volume or distribution of amyloid matters. Uh, it has many different uh, biological uh, states. So the diffuse deposits can be seen in normal elderly people who are cognitively perfectly fine. So even PET scan with ban or some other radiopharmaceutical are not uh, indicative of this diagnosis. Moreover, we know that amyloid in its soluble form is protective, is acutely protective mechanism. So, for instance, in traumatic oh, what, what do you mean injury, it's, what do you mean it's, yeah, what do you mean it's protective? Yeah, if you have, if you have, yeah, traumatic brain injury, for example, if you produce more amyloid, then you will get better sooner. So, it is a protective mechanism in the short term. But in the long term, it obviously do some harm. And uh, actually, it, uh, it is believed that 
it starts the reactive uh, phenotype of microglial cells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, in 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 thirty years, the 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 view on those pathological changes has totally totally changed. It's, it's different, and uh, every day with every new discovery, you have to repaint the whole picture. You have to rethink of what it means at and and how it goes over time because from earliest uh, pathological changes still uh, clinical overt clinical picture it takes 20 30 maybe 40 years so uh, one neuropathologist uh, said that uh, neuropathology is when you have 2000 or 4000 uh, soldiers on the field and then each each of them shoots to an opponent and then they all die and you get the brain autopsy for neuropathological analysis and you have to find which one shoot it first and this is this is difficult because there is a in as in all biological systems you have enormous complexity of players of those soldiers on the field on the battlefield so, so, so Goran, what's what's different if you look at again from a histological point of view what's different about the brain of someone that has plaques but does okay. not have Okay. One that does. So uh, today, most people believe that uh, uh, senile plaques or amyloid plaques, as we call them today, are just byproduct of what is going on. And that uh, more susceptible and vulnerable neurons, they die much sooner, much before, prior to these typical neuropathological changes. So actually, the more resistant neurons they sequestrate tau proteins, they sequestrate amyloid. Actually, amyloid uh, accumulates both intracellular and extracellular. And then, yeah, about 60 to 70% of scientists believe that intracellular amyloid is more harmful than the extracellular. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. So uh, you have processes of uh, buildup and you have process of clearance. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, the process of buildup is based on some signaling. One of the ideas is that uh, beta amyloid serves as a glue to protect blood vessels from from breakage, from stroke to occur. So there are special mechanisms in the brain to prevent clot to be formed. And in this way, this amyloid precursor protein, the originating molecule for uh, amyloid, is actually an isoform of protease nexin 2, which is an anticoagulant. So it is believed that uh, this mechanism of oligomerization of amyloid into plaques is over 640 million year old, and it is present even in plants, so in all living wow. creatures. 
So it so is it is it making the the plaques kind of like a biofilm? Well, the plaques, uh, are they alive or are they dead material? You must have heard of uh, amyloid angiopathy, which means a buildup of amyloid in the blood vessels. And originally in 1984, George Glenner and Kane Wong they scrapped this amyloid from blood vessels and they proved that it is the same as in amyloid plaques. Quaranto really? huh. made antibodies. So uh, it is believed that in one of many theories that there are signals in, in this neurovascular unit which induce neurons and glial cells to produce amyloid to fix, to glue potential places where a stroke could occur, where breakage of blood vessels could occur. So this signal makes more amyloid. So if you have enough quantities, sufficient quantities of amyloid, you will prevent stroke to occur. Now, stroke is not one disease. It could be thromboischemic. It could be hemorrhagic. It has multiple pathophysiological mechanisms. But uh, yeah, it could be the problem that once you start to produce amyloid to prevent stroke, that uh, then there is no uh, negative feedback mechanism to to prevent this amyloid to build up and to the problem occurs when these diffuse deposits, when they become insoluble, when they get this form of beta fibrillar sheets. So it, it becomes stiff and then it compromises axoplasmic transport, all sorts of things. But oh, so can you, idea, can, you, yeah. can you have amyloid that is of a different structure and some of it yes. is permeable yes. and some of it's not? Yes. So as long as it is soluble, it is highly protective. However, when oligomers form, they may, yeah, since last 10 years, we know that it may destroy synapses. It may, it may, uh, it may cause problems with the, with the synaptic transmission. However, uh, the problem is to explain how and why in certain people, these diffuse deposits do not, are not cleared. It means that uh, it even has something to do with the lymphatic system, which has been recently discovered, and with the lymphatic vessels in the brain. So since two years ago, we know that brain is not Im- immunoprivileged organ. And it has to do with uh, even with your position uh, during the sleep, because this lymphatic system through aquaporin channels, through blood-brain barrier, it, it provides efflux of water. And uh, this amyloid buildup on blood vessels, primarily on, on capillaries, cortical capillaries in Alzheimer's disease. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes they prevent these osmotic pressures and hydrostatic pressures. So they prevent efflux of water. It seems that clearance is not good enough. Clearance occurs in slow wave sleep. So uh, as you get older, the slow wave wave sleep, this part of sleep is getting worse uh, because normally about 43% of uh, metabolites form during the day, during the activity in neurons that are constantly active, it's being, it is being cleared. However, the same neurons which support slow-wave sleep, such as dorsal raphe nuclei, serotoninergic nuclei in the brainstem, they, are being, they accumulate those toxic wastes or metabolites, including amyloid, 
and other byproducts of the of the amyloid precursor proteins and others. So you have a, a similar, somewhat similar disease, which is called the idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus, where you have uh, something uh, different, which is opposite, which is the uh, not the influx but the efflux, the uh, the drainage pathway where these metabolites are not being drained away properly into the venous uh, blood and out of the brain. So in these cases, in one large study, almost 90% of uh, patients have been uh, improved after shunting operation. So if you provide this uh, drainage of metabolites, then you increase the clearance. So as as with many other neurodegenerative diseases, you have, on the one side, you have this efflux and clearance. Uh, You have, uh, at one side, you have uh, metabolism or production of amyloid. And on the other side, you have the clearance. So obviously that you have to have a balance between the production and the clearance. So it seems, for instance, that in Alzheimer's disease, you have increased production but the drainage is pretty much okay. In idiopathic normotensive hydrocephalus, you have normal production, but the drainage seems to be compromised. And all- uh, one, one question here, the, um, is it a one-way conversion of amyloid plaque from the soluble form to the insoluble form, or can it go back and forth? Well, that is, uh, that is excellent question, because you always think that there is a point of no return. I believe that there must be at least two hit hypotheses or three or more. And uh, many of my colleagues also believe that this second hit could be from divalent ions. So what makes diffuse deposits to become stiff and uh, non-soluble may depend on uh, uh, divalent cations such as iron, copper, and zinc. And for this, it's important to have... uh, impermeable blood-brain barrier. So with, with aging, you have this kind of uh, increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier. And then, yes, in each amyloid plaque, you 70 to 80% of amyloid plaques, you will find iron atom in, in the center. It, means, it might mean that there was the initial point where, where due to bre- break of the of the capillaries, some erythrocytes, some red blood cells were spilled and were starting, were served as a precipitating center for uh, amyloid plaques to be formed. This is regardless of its importance for the pathophysiology. We just want to explain the mechanistic uh, uh, series of events. But yeah, you would have to take such difficult hypotheses that reach out in deep into the evolution are not easily uh, solvable and uh, you cannot easily check for, for those. But you collect... Quick question here. So is the iron bound to a certain molecule and is it acting as a nucleation site for a plaque? Yes, yes. So you have in vitro models with cells. If you add a little of small amounts of uh, copper and zinc, you will increase this fibrillization of amyloid for... 40 to uh, 400 to 500 percent. So five, four to five times quicker, this non-harmful soluble amyloid uh, becomes, it gets into this beta pleated shape. It becomes fibrillar 
and then it cannot this process cannot be reversed it's irreversible but still uh yeah and then it it is it it forms those uh, neuritic plaques which is a combination of neurofibrillary changes and the and also the changes in the amyloid precursor protein molecules that are that are product of the metabolism of APP so uh you may have heard that there is a group of scientists who believe that there is a primary age related telepathy where these changes occur in absence of amyloid and also you have a large group of uh, scientists which are devoted to the to the fact that amyloid is antimicrobial peptide it was in 2005 when first of from this group ll35 i believe was discovered so it has also anti-infectious properties and uh, yeah it is uh, it is also crucial in cholesterol metabolism etc etc so uh, when you have any given molecule say protein it may be involved at different places in different processes in different mechanisms and yeah there are plenty of them so it is uh, Uh, complexity it is the contingencies are endless so i believe that yeah human brain cannot uh, cannot absorb all of that we 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 will be able to handle this problem either with some sort of ai or some uh, machine learning because it is such a huge amount of data only 20 or 30 years ago we have linear hypothesis does amyloid affect this or that process and then you had only two or three variables that you were played with but you were right. not knowing not knowing the the whole environment and that is what, the problem the, with transgenic um... models in transgenic models say you have a human gene and you transfect it into an animal but the product of this gene is is an avatar on another planet so it's over 100 million years of divergence between say rodents and humans so right. uh, it is even if you find some way of uh, preventing for instance amyloid build up to happen to occur in in vitro or in an in vivo uh, animal model later on in advanced uh, in second phase and or third phase of clinical studies uh, clinical trials it it uh, it yeah over 2090 clinical trials trials were actually failed in alzheimer's disease so it is uh it was, question here since yeah. you said that um the amyloid plaque contains or is in whole it's an antimicrobial peptide does that it point is to antimicrobial the fact that... peptide yes so in okay, vitro so the, if you the... add yeah if you add this amyloid in vitro it will uh in 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 petri dish it will you you have uh, you have colonies grown on agar and if you add this a beta it will prevent growth of uh, staphylococcus and uh, even fungi and many different uh, common bac- bacteria even viruses so it has antiviral properties as well so it has okay so over- if this occurs in the brain would that suggest that there is a microbiome no, in the brain important. there's a yeah. dysbiosis Uh, maybe you've seen this uh, science article uh, last year it was uh, overstretched so the results of the study were that uh, scientists found in six cases of alzheimer's disease they found gingipines proteins of porphyromonas from the mouth uh, in the brain and then 
yeah, the conclusion, the discussion was totally wrong because either editor or others took that direction because it was not that uh, porphyromonas caused Alzheimer's disease. It is more likely that those demented people who were demented for years were not having a proper hygiene. So due to the uh, increased permeability of blood-brain barrier, this bacteria, along with its proteins that it produces, enter into the brain. And then uh, during autopsy, you find those bacteria in the brain of Alzheimer's disease patients. So, But it was like the, the commentaries, uh, the editorials and the comments were like, oh, if I don't brush my teeth regularly, those porphyromonas gingivalis will enter into my brain and cause Alzheimer's. It's not like that. So there, it is the sequence of events. We would like to, most people would like to see the single pathogenetic mechanism but it seems more likely that there might be many subforms of the disease and that different molecular pathways can cause common neuropathological changes such as neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques. Tangles could be found in over 35 different uh, disorders and diseases. And uh, amyloid is also a huge group of diseases. So we are talking about just one of the most of the commonest causes of dementia, which is Alzheimer's disease. For Alzheimer's disease, it is uh, defined by both plaques and tangles. So only if you find both, then we can talk about Alzheimer's disease. But there are myriad of others that are underrepresented in one uh, series of over of several hundred brains. It was 5% uh, Alzheimer's and 6% were Alzheimer's, 5% was Bragg's dementia, which is argyrophilic brain disease, for which most of the people not, do not know much about. So, uh, so what, do, what do amyloid plaques look like if they're in the brain versus them being in a blood vessel? That is an excellent question. It is, the same, it is the same molecular structure. It is the same source. But yeah, they behave differently. And uh, since mid-90s, we know that neither volume nor distribution correlate with the, with the dementia severity. However, the number of neurofibrillary tangles and their distribution is uh, highly correlates, positively correlates with the, uh, with the, with the dementia and with the uh, neuropsychological scores or mini-mental or MOCA or other neuropsychological tests. So, uh, and it is the, also the problem of where it starts. We still don't know where are the initial changes because today we know that these neurofibrillary changes spread from the site of origin and then to the projecting areas, probably even by retrograde transport, which is a model and experiments we are currently performing in our lab. So uh, we believe we have already some unpublished results that tau changes and tau oligomers could could spread by uh, retrograde axoplasmic flow, not only anterograde. And also it is, uh, we saw that uh, activation of microglial cells can occur only due to these pathological tau proteins, even without the presence of amyloid. So all previously dogmatic uh, paradigms were like uh, fall apart recently. So glial cells may be the initial drivers. Also changes in cholesterol metabolism, 
which is also supported by genetic studies. A uh, quick question here about the plaques yeah. themselves. Do they overlap like scales? And how big are they on average? And does that matter at all? What's their shape? Excellent What's their size? Question. Excellent question. Yeah, nobody knows how they grow and why are some larger, why are, why are some smaller? Uh, Alzheimer himself uh, noted that some can be seen by naked eye. So they have a diameter of one millimeter or so. But uh, yeah, my idea, which I published, uh, is that uh, projecting large neurons from the brainstem, which innervate cerebral cortex, they, from their axons, uh, amyloid can leak, beta amyloid can leak from those axons. And others, Professor Brock and others also uh, find some, uh, have some findings that may support this uh, hypothesis. Because, uh, for instance, uh, serotonergic fibers, they have both synaptic buttons, but they have also what is called volume transmission, which means that they spray their terminal ramifications of axons and uh, the axonal terminals. They release not only serotonin, but also some other molecules. So it is possible that the size of amyloid could depend also on this afferent projecting system. So it is. it could be not only a local production. Since 1991, we know that uh, amyloid can come, is that Alzheimer's disease is a systemic disease. Actually, this roots back in 1980 when uh, changes in uh, immunocompetent cells in lymphocytes were found. And then people, only then people realized that Alzheimer's disease is a systemic disease. And for instance, fibroblast in skin of Alzheimer's disease patient, they produce three to four times more amyloid than skin fibroblast of controls. So uh, it is the overall overall production of uh, amyloid beta, but also other products of APP metabolism that increasingly that are accumulating in in the, in the bodies of. And that was the reason why the first, the first vaccination against Alzheimer's disease failed in, in 2003, because uh, they immunized first 280 patients with the whole molecule. And the C-terminal part of the molecule is highly immunogenic, and it caused uh, meningoencephalitis in 28 patients when, when this, uh, when this trial needed to be started. Jeez, that's 10, that's 10%. That's bad. Really bad. Yes. What were they trying to so, do is get rid of the, get rid of the, the first beta, part the of the molecule is immunogenic, and it was the so-called peripheral sink hypothesis. Today we know, for instance, we since 2003, 2004, we take uh, uh, cerebrospinal fluid and we measure different core and potential biological markers for the disease. So uh, typically in Alzheimer's disease patients, you have patients you have decreased concentrations of amyloid beta in cerebrospinal fluid, supposedly because it builds up, it accumulates in the brain. So you have smaller quantities in the cerebrospinal fluid. Later on, in the next phase, you have increase in uh, total tau proteins and phosphorylated tau proteins, which are today accepted as uh, biological markers of the disease, still they are characteristic, but not specific. So you have always overlap with controls, with other, with other uh, diseases, and it's, it's always a mosaic of information 
and you always play with the real reliability and the probability of the correct diagnosis during during the lifetime. And then certainly there are many studies that show that biological markers are more informative and more reliable, at least 10 to 15% to clinical diagnosis. And only after autopsy, you see that that there is a huge overlap of pathologies and that those comorbidities are general finding. First, you have normal aging, as I said, Recently, paper was published that each person after the, after the age 48 has neurofibrillary tangles, regardless of the pathology. And also after 55, there is no single brain without small infarctions in, in thalamic territories and elsewhere. Mm. And then, yeah, you have typically you see that some sort of synuclinopathy develops and then neurofibrillary changes develops. And you have an overlap of these pathologies in various stages. And yes, Alzheimer's disease uh, was present since ancient times. And because evolution and natural selection does not have anything to, to deal with those wrong letters which, and, and changes which occur after the reproduction, after in elderly people. So those faulty letters in our genomes, they accumulate over time. So uh, yeah, th- th- there, is, uh, there is nothing that could be solved through evolution. Indeed, more and more variants of different genes accumulate over time, which predispose us for sort of either Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia, et cetera, et cetera. You must have heard that, that for each genetic change, usually during the evolution, there is some trade-off. So if you get something good during the reproductive period, if some gene product, if some protein serves that you have uh, less fragile bones. It doesn't matter if you later on during senium that you will have some arthritis or something else. So uh, in, in, that, in that sense, it seems that, for instance, tau, tau gene uh, and its uh, variants, uh, it, is, uh, it is advised not to call them mutations. So uh, these are all okay. gene variants. So also it is not advisable to say uh, dementia it is better to say major neurocognitive disorder. But yeah, certain processes which we call normal aging and the sort of processes which are definitely pathology. And Alzheimer's disease is not accelerated aging, but it is a separate pathological process that uh, overlaps, and I miss the term, when it, uh, uh, it happens, it occurs at the same time, and uh, it seems as normal changes also uh, get worse and accelerate. So, uh, uh, but certainly it is, uh, it is a separate process. Uh, okay. Only 5 to 10 people are having so-called neuropathologically clear or clean aging. So uh, it is in the, for the first 60 years, it is, you can help to achieve that, that uh, life expectancy by your uh, diet, by your uh, healthy uh, habits, etc., etc. After 60, from 60 to 80, it is about uh, 50% genetic background, 50% your habits or your uh, dietary regime and uh, your workout and your healthy habits, etc., etc. However, after 80, 
there is a sigmoid curve. Uh, the, the prevalence and incidence of Alzheimer's disease does not increase anymore. So those gene variants that are involved in pathological processes, they are either present or not. So people with the uh, uh, centenarians uh, who live up to their 80s, 90s, or 100 year, years of age, they have simply uh, good genes. And if you, so uh, by your uh, healthy lifestyle, you may increase your ex- life expectancy until 60, 65. But much of what will happen later actually depend on the, on, on the genes that you got from your uh, parents. So uh, it is uh, highly heritable. So people... All right, well, who, well Gran, we're, yeah. we're at the end of time, but what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Uh, well, I have this uh, web page, Dementia, H-I-I-N dot H-R. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good, Grun. Thank you for coming. I can tell that you're you very passionate about this. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.